Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Reinsurance Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jared Lee. And I'm Ben Rays. And today, we're joined by a very special guest, Dickie Whittaker. Welcome to the show. They're all special. Well, they're all special, but but this is an extra special guest. Yeah, thank you. Because because you're, you're cutting straight to the heart of what really makes reinsurance reinsurance, which is the whole world of, of modeling, which we haven't really talked about that much yet. No. So we're hoping you can give us a, a doorway into it. But before we before we get into specifics, I'd love to just give everyone a bit of background about yourself and how you fell into the world of, of reinsurance in the first place. Um, okay, so that's thank you and thanks to be here. But um, I'm Dickie Whittaker and... I currently am the CEO and founder of Oasis Loss Modeling Framework, which I started 10 years ago, but that's obviously not how I got into the business. I got into the insurance reinsurance business like 85% of the people that are there because somebody said, have you thought about a career in reinsurance? And I said, what's reinsurance? Yeah. So that's how I started out. I started out as a broker, but that was um, 40 years ago. So it's quite a long time ago. And I've done a lot of risk stuff in between. So really I got into risk about 27, 28 years ago. And I thought hey, this is cool because the best people ended up in broking or underwriting. And I sort of realized that there was a gap in risk, Mm -hmm. particularly in the interface between really smart people who build models, but often can't explain how to use them. And the users of the models who don't know how to use them. So that's, I got into that sort of position and I, I got the, the ladder up the board of whatever the game's called. And I ended up by doing some stuff in risk and, end up, and then I ended up by doing stuff in innovation and end up by starting Oasis. Yeah. Um, so there you go. That's, that's it. Very cool. Do you want to, would you sort of give the, the audience like a, a super fast sort of history run through of what is cat modeling? How did it emerge? What problems is it trying to solve and, and help the industry wrap its head around? That's an interesting question. Well, I, I think the beginning, the, the, the genesis of cat modeling is, um, <clears throat> if you start at least, at least if you start with a reasonable time period, insurers or reinsurers would go, how how frequent is a European windstorm? Mm-hmm. And and they go like, well, we haven't had one recently, have we? No, we haven't had one recently. Anybody know of one recently? No, I don't think so. Okay, so we'll call that a one in fifty then, right? And then literally that's how it started. I mean, I remember broking back in 1987 uh, when people said, oh, this this big event that's just hit UK and Denmark and everything else called then 87J, that must be one in a 300 year event. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we don't have to put a price up too much. And then 1990 happened and three events happened of which 90A in those days, Dari, I think it was called, um, was like the biggest moment. Okay, it's not one in 300 anymore. It's one in something else. But that's how people did it, right? They, they, you know, the Kiln Syndicate employed an academic and people went, what are you doing? Like you're employing an academic to answer these questions? That's how it started. And then there's an, an American guy who's at a university whose name I can't remember. It'll come to me in a second. But he started sort of saying, well, you know, you could do these simulations. And those simulations, when he was doing the work, was in fact, he worked for the travelers part-time as an advisor. So the travelers got into that. And then some other people got interested in it. And then some sort of, well, some nerds in Stanford said, hey, we can do a better job of this, which is how... Hemant Shah and his father, Haresh, started RMS. And Karen Clark went slightly before that, hey, I think I can get these clever guys to build a cat model. So, so those, that was the genesis of, of cat modeling. But, but, but also there's a, there's a history in the nuclear industry because from a regulated perspective, they had to do stuff. So they started to sort of building models too. So that's how the model started. Yeah. Fascinating. And I guess we're seeing that now grow and, and change. And, and obviously we'll come on to Oasis specifically. I, but in general, I guess, how would you say 
technology and data has changed the way that we handle risk as a as an industry. So um, a bit, um, <laughs> you know, if you take a thirty year period, we've got you know a billion web pages on the internet. We've got phones that can do things that you you know couldn't do with an Apollo rocket, etc., etc., etc. And the data in the insurance industry has improved by fifty percent or something. I mean, it's an incredibly slow change given the world around us. Um, when some people say to me things like, hey, haven't we been well served by the industry that produces models and data? I just get angry because it's like, have you looked around you and seen what else you can do? So the answer is not as much as it needs to, which is, you know, which is a challenge. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we're just scraping the surface of what technology will be able to do. And I think you're right. In other sectors, it's it's made very sizable leaps in that same 30-year window since sort of the advent of the internet. Um and and it's being underutilized in a lot of spaces in our industry. Have you have you sort of? And I think when you talk about the previous approach, it was a broker with a relationship with, with a relationship to an underwriter looking at risks, you know, on on their own and trying to put a finger to the wind as to how frequent something might be. This was sort of the first step of well, hiring an academic. That's encroaching on the sort of sacred bond between these relationships. And I think you always see a little bit of that hesitancy to engage tech for fear of it eroding what was historically the well i trust you and i know that you'll bring me the good risks and and you you do these deals on trust have you sort of seen that in the in the evolution of the modeling frameworks as well that sort of fear of it it sort of breaking down the human component of of how this industry works well, it certainly changed it. I, I don't know if I say it's broken, it's broken down. It certainly changed it because, of course, the trust element has changed, right? So before you'd go, I know this person. They've been around a long time. They come from an established firm. You know, I trust that firm. You know, and then, of course, you get to some sedent. You know, do I trust the sedent? So there's that trust through that chain. And then you throw in something that says, yeah, but we're interpreting the risk profile of this company using something called a model. And it's produced by a company that I may or may not know. Do I trust the data that's got into that model? Do I trust the ability of that model to do something? And by the way, if you actually told me how that model was built, would that improve my trust in it? Because I'm not an atmospheric scientist. I don't know how they've downscaled from a GCM. So can I actually, how do I get trust in a model that's very, very complex? So that's that's the 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 the, the big change that we've seen in the last 30 years. And it's very, very difficult because humans by nature try to ignore um, uncertainty. It's part of our survival mechanism. So when you say, and we try, I tried this in 1999 with, with some of my colleagues, we went, hey, we know what the uncertainty is in the US hurricane model. It's this big. And what happened is all of our clients in those days went, well, if that's how big it is, we're not going to use that model. Mm. Even though it was just an expression of the real uncertainty that exists. Right? It wasn't you know, in any model. In fact, it was really pretty generic. So I think we have a problem with, with, with trust because we haven't learned enough about how to m measure the efficacy of, uh, of, of many models, actually. And, and that's a, a challenge for society and it's particularly a challenge for the insurance industry. Yeah, certainly. And I think perhaps we've seen that trust grow into what is nowadays quite a, a reduced number of providers in the modeling world. So, so the, the big names, I guess you'd call RMS and AIR. Uh, there are, though, as as Oasis really helps us learn, many more models emerging all around the world from from different sources. So maybe now is a good moment for you to share about where did Oasis come from? What was the the early need that set you off on this journey ten years ago? Well, the, you know the the the, the like 
like the insurance industry, there's subdivisions and tribes within it, and the cap modeling tribe gets together you know, frequently and goes, why can't we get this, and how do we get that, and you're a broker, can you help me get this? So the conversation about the challenges, and in some cases deficiencies, and I'm, you know, deficiencies isn't necessarily a criticism, right? Everything has deficiencies, but that conversation had been going on for some time. And I'd won a grant from the UK government, as it happened, to um, stimulate sort of innovation in finance. And then for various reasons, I decided to resign from Guy Carpenter. So I go, what do I do now? And I was just looking at this problem thinking, well, I've got some money from the UK government. Let's, let's talk about what we're doing. Then I went to some CEOs and I said, look, if I started this company, would you fund me? And they went, yes. And then I went, oh my God, what have I done? (laughs) I'm going to have two years of, you know, difficulty and challenge and pain. And I was wrong because it was 10 years of mm-hmm. <laughs> pain and challenge. But, but, but really the genesis was there's a problem in the industry and that problem hasn't gone away. It's been mitigated somewhat, partly because of what we've done and some other stuff too that's going on. So, you know, you know that, that fear of modeling. So we're trying to deal with all the things that I and other, many others have perceived to be an issue. So we're trying to deal with transparency. We're trying to deal with barriers to entry. We're trying to deal with choice. We're trying to cut costs by creating standards. We're trying to allow innovation more swiftly to enter into the business. So these are all facets of what an open platform like Oasis can bring to the table. You know, and um, by some definition, we really succeeded because we've got a very fast, very efficient platform. Um, other firms um, struggle to build a platform at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that we've done it with a small team is pretty good. Um, we've uh, and it's the the you know we've, we're just proving it's the fastest platform available for cat models um, in the world. And we've got like 16 providers of models in that platform, over 200 models. So this issue, if you look around the industry right now, we've got this problem of, you know, so-called unmodeled risks. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's pretty much nothing that is unmodeled. It's just, is it available in a shape and a form that I can get access to? And we provide that shape, that form to deliver models from all around the world. Yeah. One of, one of the things we talk about kind of as a business and, and where we see some of this technology going um, is how do you democratize access to content, to information, to models in this example, where previously it was sort of a a duopoly of go to one of those two players and they may or may not have what you're looking for. And the framework that Oasis has set out is a much more open plan one where anyone could go in there, build a solution for a very niche case. Academics from anywhere in the world could begin to work within that framework and not only democratize access to a client base, if they're an academic in a certain part of the world, but that audience of insurers or reinsurers could potentially put out, you know, um, requests for models that we might build for them. And, and you begin to really create a, a, a space where this becomes much more accessible. And as you said, at, at scale, it begins to reduce the price quite dramatically. And you, you can introduce all manner of things that means no longer is it something that only the biggest, wealthiest firms could, could afford to have access to, but rather becomes sort of table stakes for most companies because of this. So I think it's a huge initiative that's that's has an enormous value to the industry. Well, thank you. I mean, I, 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 you know, exactly right because you can you can do all of those things, and you can even sort of customize models too. So we have we have organizations that have a model, and somebody comes along and says, "Yeah, but our, our portfolio is so different," and they can get customized vulnerability functions based on what they're doing, mm-hmm. and so they feel like they've got a tradi- You know, they don't have to rebuild a whole model. They're just changing the vulnerability functions. So there's there's a whole, you know, the democratization, I use that phrase 
we talk about sometimes we're trying to democratize the knowledge of risk because not only are we doing it in the insurance or insurance industry which you know has a fair amount of knowledge by any definition but we're also you know we're also heavily involved in through organizations like the insurance development forum in developing countries so we built a couple of models for years ago funded by the german government in the philippines and in bangladesh and we work with them when we use local data because i think it is at best condescending to for for the western world to turn around to these countries and go we know more about your risk than you do you know don't you worry about it just trust our sort of clever people from you know, Europe and the UK and the US and everywhere else to, to do this work for you. It's 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 demeaning. It's 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 wrong. Morally, I think it's wrong. And actually, it doesn't even make sense sometimes because the knowledge of the local buildings is in those countries. Yeah. It isn't in you know Chicago or 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 Boston or London or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think one of the interesting things that I really stands out for me with Oasis is you're really at that intersection of tech and traditional reinsurance and, and modeling and so on. And one of the, the words that I, I suspect will confuse about half of our audience, maybe the more reinsurance half, uh, is open source. Your position very much is open source modeling. Uh, it's not a condiment, first of all, when we talk about <laughs> open source. Uh, could you just explain a little bit about what that means in a modeling context? Yeah, people, <clears throat> people get very confused between difference between open access, open without any qualification, and open source. So open source really I think only applies to software and it very specifically means the software you build is available for anybody to download, use, change in some shape or form and there are slightly different licenses that apply to how you can change it if you have to give credit. We've used the most uh, open license you can get which essentially means you can download it and you can use it in commercial applications. You can do what you want with it. You just can't sue us if it, if it doesn't do what you wanted to do and you can't trademark it, i.e. turn it from open source into not. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, we don't care what you do with it. But I think that people get confused thinking all the models around Oasis are open source and actually virtually none of them are because we wanted to stimulate a, an ecosystem of model providers that are incentivized by what does for most people, which is making money. And it's the best way of getting this stuff into the, you know, into the hands of, of insurance and reinsurance companies. So all Oasis itself is open source as a platform. All of the models bar one or two, hundred, the hundreds or so models that are available are all proprietary models that are owned by companies that want to make money. Yeah. We love um, analogies on our show. Um, it, does this, is this sort of like, and correct me if I've, if I've gone astray, is it sort of like um, like iOS SDK or a Google sort of app store SDK where they're saying, here is the framework by which you can build things, models. Um, anyone with this device could then build, or you could build any sort of model there and then anyone with that device could then license or purchase your app. You might make your app free. You might charge quite a hefty premium for that. But here you can build it into it. Is that is it similar to how you think about it? It's a <clears throat> it's a little bit. I mean, it's the certainly the enabling bit is really really important. But actually, one of the challenges is that building catastrophe models, building any model maybe, but certainly building catastrophe models, it's not like everybody can do it. Mm-hmm. And the the one of the challenges we've got is that if you go to any academic around the world who is an expert in climate science or in um, you know earthquake earthquakes or flooding or hydrology or something, they go, I build models. But the, the building a catastrophe model to the standards that are acceptable to the insurance or insurance industry, ILS marketplace, is a very specific skill. And so we've had to tutor many academic organizations 
bright, very smart, smart, bright people, but they don't know what a cow model is. And again, it's this, it's a multidisciplinary issue because actually you, you need to have hydrologists involved. You probably need to have engineers involved. You actually need statisticians involved. And statisticians are often the missing component from some of these things. Mm-hmm. And then it helps if you've got some sort of computer science background as well, because there is also the art of the possible. You know, if it's going to take a week to run something, probably not fit for purpose. Do you think, again, this is a potentially existential question for a lot of people in the industry, but with all the types of role that you've mentioned there, you know, the, the computer scientists, the statisticians, the meteorologists, all these the different skill sets uh, that aren't typically built in. I know you, you, you spoke not that long ago of people being astonished by the idea of an academic being involved in, in our pricing processes at all. Are you seeing Oasis... Uh, and, and in general, the industry nurturing and bringing in new talent away from the traditional roles we've we've known. Definitely, definitely. No, I mean, I think you know one of the good things is, I mean, I wouldn't want to use the early part of my career as any representation of what it is today. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are organisations. I mean, there's one organisation that only employ um, underwriters who've got maths degrees of some shape or form. There are scientists all over the place. You know, there is probably an equal distribution of, you know, men and women, for example, you know, so I mean, the the industry today looks completely different than it did um, when I first started. Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think going back to your earlier comment is around how we leverage data better. I think it starts with talent, right? Once you get enough smart people working towards problems, from there, you can begin to source more pools of data, deploy it and build models that effectively, effectively leverage that data. But if you start with that historical sort of talent pool and just sort of say, we have more data now, that that talent pool wasn't as well equipped now. There wasn't as many data scientists. There wasn't as many engineers. All of these things that are critical to understanding that as the industry attracts the talent first, it positions us really, really well then to say, okay, now we've got all these people with these additional skill sets have at this pool of data. Let's, let's leverage that and include that in what we want to sort of build it from a modeling perspective. I think the, the but the interesting thing, a, a really key component to me is, so we got these super bright people. I mean, I love the fact that we got these clever people because like, I, I, you know, I, I just have to, I love feeding off these people. But the, the critical thing is, can they change the industry? Because the systems and the processes and the way distribution works and everything else is so hardwired in so many ways that there is a question about how quickly the insurance industry can change. So that's a big deal. Have you seen, I mean, maybe you could share some examples of, or, or a, an example that, that looks really promising for the industry to follow in, in future with the Oasis where maybe previously there was a region that the industry didn't model or thought couldn't be modeled. But, you know, over time now through this framework, some academics somewhere maybe or, or somebody who had a model has been able to put that into the hands of our traditional brokers and underwriters so that they can look at this risk in a wholly new way. I'm going to use artistic licenses to give me one to say, <laughs> I mean, I think a couple of things that we've been done that are really interesting. I think we probably had the first climate condition cap model available mm. um, by the Potsdam Institute in, in Germany. Um, you know, so that's a, that's a really good example. Um, and I think we've done more on uh, looking at sensitivity and transparency in models. Because that's that's a big deal, you know. Using a model blindly is not smart. Um, so we've done th- those are two things that we've been pioneering in, I think, um, and and which is you know that's what part of the, our function, I believe, is to to try stuff, right? And that doesn't mean that by the way, it doesn't always have to work. You know, you can fail a little bit on this stuff, but and and certainly on climate condition models, you know, that's a very interesting space. How should you represent climate change 
for the insurance industry is is a non-trivial question. Yeah. Well, and and the models approach, and you still see this with the with the with the big two, is after major events. This, the range of potential maximum losses for the industry is, is huge, and and they both hold very different positions on that. So you're always going to have a a margin of error and an estimation around the models, but it gives you something. It gives you a starting point. It gives you a place to kind of say, okay, if we think that's the case, we can hedge up a little bit or down a little bit based on our perception of this. But it at least helps us begin to quantify something that before would didn't have anything. We could sort of really anchor our, our approach on or anchor our pricing on. I think there's a trade-off um, that's been made um, unintentionally by the insurance industry. The trade-off is between do you actually want to get um, um, knowledge about the uncertainty in these models and deal with that throughout your organization, or would you rather the models are heavily calibrated towards the most recent event, which which will show you that actually you can you can get uh, you know hindcast on that event and say oh within twenty five percent of our losses this model is good the next one happens and you're miles off mm-hmm. and because you never wanted to, to deal with this thorny issue of let's understand the uncertainty and that's what's been happening so the models generally have been heavily calibrated towards recent events which mean the next one comes along and they don't work very well at all but they never would have done you know they they don't work very well is what so that's the problem we've got to be better at sort of doing that sort of stuff. Totally. And, and maybe for our, our listeners, because again, all sorts of backgrounds tuning in uh, to this podcast, could you explain a little bit about how these models work? I know there's a variety of methods, but it, but it can be seen as a bit of a black box. What goes in and what comes out? And what happens in between? <clears throat> I should probably have practiced uh, more how to, how to explain the count model in 45 seconds. But essentially, um, maybe the easiest way to describe it is... Um, if you imagine that, let's just take in North America has hurricanes. So there are small ones and there are big ones, and there are wide ones and there are shallow ones, and the ones that produce lots of rain, the ones that produce less rain. So these models characterize those in a more scientific way. So you get a distribution of all of those elements, and you might want to run those 30, 40,000 times because you need a reasonable sample, much more than history, right? History is too short. So these, these are, there are simulated events in these models. They, they, they have to have to run across the exposure and you get out some sort of expected loss. So that's sort of what they do. But I'm simplifying your process. You can get there's the so com, there's so much complexity in these models and they're so sensitive to all sorts of parameters. That's why they're hard to use. And that's why they're hard to understand because there's so much in there. Is there any current work in you can decide how much you can uh, disclose or not, but current work that's like models in progress that are being built on Oasis that like really excite you. It's not out yet, but you know there are people working on X that you're going, this is a really interesting area if they build this, if they can get this to work and build this out. Um, I think probably the answer to that is there is one, and I just happened to be having a conversation about it this afternoon. So we've got a, a ransomware model that we're looking at. So part of the cyber risk sort of profile, series of profiles. And that's really interesting just because it's a bit different. And it's also interesting because I think <clears throat> despite the fact that we all know that cyber is a big threat, there are probably quite a few modeling firms out there who have taken uh, uh, maybe a simplistic approach to a very complex issue. And when working with somebody that is really into the detail, really know their stuff, and they think they can get a highly credible within the uncertainty bounds that we all know there should be there, model that's going to be on Oasis. So that's my current favorite because it's different and it's new and at a meeting this afternoon. Yeah, very interesting. I think I think it raises, interestingly, one of the um, 
challenges of the modeling world and, and the voice of the actuaries and the cat, the cat modelers all around that often the things they find out through their models don't fit with the market dynamics at the time or aren't necessarily what the, the clients, the brokers, the reinsurers want to hear in order to get their deals done. I think that we've certainly had stories in the past where, you know, some of the things discovered through a modeling approach would contradict the the willingness of an organization to maintain a good relationship that's been going for 20 years. How do you find uh, or how do you think those interactions will continue to go as more and more models are available or used and people start to find out what the actual exposure is versus the value of the relationship or, or similar? The, um, the best firms that I come across in my day-to-day -day activities are the ones that have sort of grappled with that already. <clears throat> Essentially, they have the sort of quant side of the business and the underwriting side of the business working seamlessly together. And in fact, in many cases, in one firm in particular I can think of, they, they actually move one to the other. So you, you will see sort of dual tracks in many organizations. The quants go in one direction and they, they, they reach essentially some sort of glass ceiling. And the underwriters go, go in another and essentially don't have a glass ceiling. And, I, and, and that's, the, that's just not a recipe for success. I used to do reviews of cat model proficiency in companies. And one of the questions you ask is, how far away do the cat modeling team sit from your underwriters? And if the answer was on a different floor, um, we'd sort of go wince and they'd look at us and go, what's the problem with that then? And we say, well, actually, it's just an indicator of potentially a problem you're going to have in the comprehension of the science and art of underwriting with the science and art of camp modeling or any other modeling for that matter. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's really fascinating to see this process, this sort of learning curve being, being bridged. And I think the advent of the first sort of wave of models, the RMSs, the IRs, what essentially drives that from my perspective is results, right? And the firms that got behind modeled approaches and began to underwrite CAD exposures with models behind them began to be very profitable and very successful. And I think the firms that are partnering their underwriting team with their quantitative teams and those teams begin to have better results, you'll begin to see everyone realign there. I think there's the, the natural tendency to diverge those two role pro profiles exists so long as results are unimpacted. But the second you start seeing firms behaving in a certain way, and this this is sort of reminiscent of what you saw in the broader sort of fintech space and the big banks, the banks that had the quants doing a lot of that work began to outperform the others and the other firms very quickly adjusted and followed suit. I think you might see a similar dynamic in our industry. The firms that couple those two role profiles very closely will begin to outperform and, and that will drive the change. I think generally they are. I mean, I think you can see that. You know, I, I certainly have a mental list of who's good and who's medium and who's bad. <laughs> and I think if you look at the results, it generally bears it out. But there are always some outliers of situations where it doesn't seem to work for some reason. Like, you know, I think it, like like you just said, and that's hard to work out because there's so much complexity in these these organizations. But I think mm -hmm. it is happening. I mean, if you, you know, I don't want to sort of, probably wouldn't be appropriate to sort of name too many names. But, you know, if you think of the people that, that are considered to be the best in this space, you look at their results and, you know, they will match. There's correlation there, definitely. Absolutely. And another correlation I wanted to draw, interestingly, around success and, and effort, I guess, in some ways, was actually that of entrepreneurship. So we, we were talking earlier, before we started recording, about I, 
how in the innovation sphere within our industry, the willingness to fully commit to getting something like Oasis or Superseed or anything else off the ground really does take all of your energy and metal. So, so I wanted to ask you a bit about your journey as, as an entrepreneur and, and seeing stuff actually happen rather than it being a sort of, you know, 5% project for some people in a big firm. Well, that just doesn't work. I mean, I, that will almost never work. I get, you know, there's, the, I, there may be one or two instances, but, you know, 99% of the time, 98% of the time, it requires that level of commitment. Um, I suppose, you know, I, I mean, I just felt that, you know, everything I'd worked towards my, you know, in my case, since it's not for profit, it's particularly reputation, not, you know, I don't bring my money in because it's not for profit, but, but I sort of did, I suppose, in the sense of lost income, certainly I probably did. Um, but, uh, you know, I just thought about it and still do think about it, you know, all day and all my waking hours, almost, I just think about it and I process stuff all the time. I worked out a couple of years ago that I did about a thousand conversations a year about, about, modeling and you know and somebody and somebody i was talking to somebody the other day and they said you know what are the top six things that you know i should be looking at in my thing and i just gave them the top six things and they went do we need to check that and i went well yeah you do you should check it i said i don't need to check it i said because i've just had a conversation this morning that added to that list and i had one yesterday and i won the day before and the day before that you know so it's that and and then just get stuff try stuff you know the whole sort of try and fail sort of i know it's sort of fashionable these days but you've just got to get out there and do stuff don't talk about it for too long you know that balance between planning and just getting stuff done and getting a reaction and changing you know that's a, such a you know you i learned it just i think instinctively from what, what worked and didn't work you, you fail a bit and you very quickly change you know when you're, you're personally committed to this stuff and you've got a team around you that's personally committed to it then you know you stuff happens and I, and I you know when I started Oasis lots of people including some of the biggest reinsurance companies in the world said to me we're not going to support you because what you're trying to do is impossible mm-hmm. I just wasn't smart enough to know it was impossible and I found some really smart people who might have been able to answer that question and they made it happen you know with you know, me helping corral the, the sort of activities. So I think I'm now, you know, I, I, I'm either in a mode of don't be so unambitious, go for go for the stars. Mm-hmm. Or if I see people doing that and I don't think they've got attention to detail, I'll say, you know, how does an endorsement work in, in this environment? Or oh, I have no idea. You know, it's like, well, yeah, but do you have somebody that has an idea? Because if you don't, you know, you could be in all trouble. Yeah, and to misquote a, a saying, you've got to have a a big and ambitious enough goal that you'd never lose sight of it when you're on the journey there. And I think that's that's certainly what you've done with a, a massive project like this tackled single-handedly. So hats off to you for well, thank you. creating it's, Oasis. It's, yeah. never, it's never over, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You never get to where you want to be. Um, you know, People say, you must be really pleased with something. And I go like, well, I was pleased about 10 minutes on Thursday. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I've now got a list of the next list of stuff in the hopper is there and yeah. too much to do. There's the the famous sort of Jeff Bezos quotes about it being day one, and I think when you're running a startup, it that it that that resonates quite strongly because every every moment you get momentum and significant milestones and all these things, like it immediately doesn't matter anymore, and you're immediately looking at the next thing. So yeah. if you're if you're not running an organization, I can see how that feels very like forced and and, and not authentic. But for those who run firms. It always that feel that resonates quite a lot because 
you're looking at all the all the progress you've made, all the momentum you've captured, all, all the uh, growth you've attained, and it's always like, okay, but what's next? Where do we go now? What's next in the on the journey? And um, and you're right. I don't think there's a very clear finish line for most of us in this space now. It's like this is the thing we dedicate. The yeah, there's there's no finish line. I think the other thing that I that I think is really critical is. I'm never just looking at another client or another two clients or another three clients or another model provider. I'm looking at the system to try and work out how to change the system to get 20 right, or 30. And not necessarily this, this month or even maybe this year. So it's like I think the system that we're all working in is the thing that we really need to focus on. Because if you can change the system a tiny bit, you can create massive opportunities and massive change. If, you, if you're only trying to do incremental sales, you know, sometimes that can be tough. Yeah, that makes, it makes sense. And it's been a, such an interesting conversation. Um, we mentioned at the start um, offline before we, we started recording with you that we like to play games on our podcast. So the one that we wanted to play with you is about pricing a risk. Um, obviously, there's not a technical price we're looking for, but just thinking about how you might come to a conclusion there. So the one I wanted to introduce to you is the the risk of getting food poisoning, whether that's included in a health program or, or elsewhere. But like, how might you think about pricing that as a risk or a risk class? Well, interesting food poisoning. So, um, well, you know, there are people I'm sure right now that do look at food poisoning. And the first thing to do would be, you know, you could, you, you, you do a classic sort of actuarial approach of going, um, you know, there are 5,000 people every year that go into hospitals and they say, I've got food poisoning and I'm unwell or really ill or I'm about to die. And that's recorded. And you can get those stats right there. So you could, you could sort of do that and go on average, you know, the risk of food poisoning is one in every X, right? And you can do that in some countries, obviously. Other. Many countries, you won't have that sort of data, so that would be a bit tough. Um, I think you could also, so that's a sort of like a bottom-up approach. It's a bit boring, but it's quite, it's quite useful in, in many situations, right? Um, but I think the, the, uh, the more interesting thing might be to think about things like, well, what type of uh, foods or condition of keeping foods produce food, food poisoning? So, you know, chicken's a good example. Leave chicken out for a few hours. You know, it can develop salmonella and a few other things. So you can very quickly get food poisoning from chicken. And, you know, to what extent is food hygiene standards available? Do we have people have refrigerators and stuff like that? Or do people even know about it? Or, or, or can they do nothing about it? So, you know, you get chicken sitting in a hot heat in some tropical country, well, they maybe they don't have any choice. Mm. So I think you'd sort of, I'd, I'd want to look at some of the drivers of food poisoning um, and see what happens there. I want to ask another one. I'm going to be, I, I want to play <laughs> this game too. No, no, because I think you've <laughs> first given, one's a bit, it's, a bit it's too easy. Almost. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I'm going to, yeah, let's test this guy. You know, the, the, the <laughs> expert modeler on the program. Yeah. I went on holiday to France recently and at a particular castle, chateau that we went to, they had, rebuilt uh, as one does as one does i they had rebuilt i what they claimed at least was the world's largest trebuchet i and we all sat in the audience and watched them fire this trebuchet sat literally just next to it and it i i was i was pretty comfortable with, with the risk but other members of the audience oh were, near the trebuchet next to the trebuchet oh, so you weren't like you weren't like looking down the thing no no, no we, i was we, gonna we, ask we, you we how were, far it went I was, like it, it, it could have been the cannon <laughs> it could <laughs> allegedly fire two kilometers distance uh, but it was, it had been reduced down in terms of firing potential to keep it a bit safer. Uh, but it did throw a, a 15 kilogram medicine ball into the field in front of it. 
Uh, and it did flail about quite a lot afterwards with all of us sat there next to it. And I, the, the reason I wanted to ask this example is because presumably nowadays there's not much contemporary data about the safety of trebuchets. No, they're probably not. <laughs> I, I, know, I know two people who have a trebuchet. That's more than I know. <laughs> which is which is probably quite a large sum. So you know half the trebuchet ownership <laughs> <laughs> group one's in, Austra- one's in Australia and one's in the UK. The one in the UK um, has these massive, they're sort of like elastic bands, and, and it can take four. And it can go something like two and a half kilometers with four. And they can't get insurance unless they have, if they have more than two, which reduces its, its range. Because, I mean, the danger is only it's going to go somewhere that, you know, you know there's, there's three hedges away or, mm. you know, something else. And there's somebody having a picnic and, and they're going to get, you know. So, cool. Well, so, anyway, what's the risk? That's, I mean, um, I don't, you can't use stats, obviously, because it's a sort of extreme value stats problem. You might actually might be able to try some extreme value stats techniques to try and get at that because there's such a sparsity of data. Um, um, I uh, I don't I, I don't think I would insure it myself. <laughs> That's too hard. There's always a price. There's always a good question. I like that. It's yeah. interesting. I'll I'll have to get you. In fact, you're going to meet the guy that built the trebuchet, um, no, and he used to fire medicine balls out of his or something like that. Um, the one I knew, they have arrows. Right. Okay. They're arrows. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're yeah. proper. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. you could probably go through a tank. This thing, yeah, it's unbelievable. But anyway, good question. A good, good, good. I'll ask, we'll ask the guy that owns it. You're going to meet him three weeks time. We'll have Brilliant. to do a full videoed podcast where we <laughs> film an arrow throwing trebuchet special feature on yeah. trebuchet pricing. So, yeah. so in fact, in fact, thinking about it, so Will Gardner from Combus in Australia is coming over in three weeks time to, and we've arranged for a presentation talking about his modeling techniques. But anybody wants to know about trebuchet, he's buying drinks afterwards and I'll get him to show pictures of his trebuchet. Sounds perfect. Fabulous. We'll try and include some notes below for those who want to come <laughs> and join. But brilliant. That, that's the best end to a podcast, I think. I don't think we'll ever top this as a, as a podcast conclusion. But it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us, Dickie. Well, it's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you very much. Thank you.